Hey everybody, come on over to London, it's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. And as promised at the end of our last episode, uh, I'm doing a quick turnaround here to get this episode out. Uh, Here I am in uh, London uh, Airbnb. It's about 2 in the morning. And uh, I'm in the theater district here. And one difference uh, between anywhere else, when you have the drunks uh, going through the um, alleyways here, they have great singing voices. (laughs) It may come through here uh, during the podcast. We have a great show coming up. We have Ross Beatty, the chairman of Pan American Silver and also chairman of Equinox Gold. One other good reason for doubling up the episodes this week is back in uh, March there, we missed one week. That was during the transfer from the podcast from our Vancouver office to our Toronto office. So now we're uh, all square again. We've been doing one episode a week since the very beginning uh, two years ago. Before we take another step, let's mention our podcast sponsors. They are the Grosso Group out of Vancouver, led by Joe Grosso. And the Grosso Group's public companies right now are Blue Sky Uranium, Argentina Lithium and Energy, and Golden Arrow Resources. And for more information, you can go to the website grossogroup.com, and that'll lead you to uh, the links to all three companies. And we also have the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's 16 members. They are Exploration, Development, and Mining Companies active in the Yukon. And the main website there is uh, yukonminingalliance.ca. Now let's get into the interview with Ross Beatty. This is uh, happening at the Canadian Mining Symposium uh, here in London at Canada House. I found it quite surprising just how much of a gold bug Ross is. You think of him with all his uh, silver developments over the years and copper just a few years ago and some of his uh, energy, uh, you know, geothermal energy, that kind of thing. But uh, some of the quotes here from the interview coming up, I love gold right now. I'm buying lots of gold. I'm fired up about it. So, and he says, uh, gold is his principal focus today. So uh, Ross Beatty, the big gold bug. We'll hear more about that. And uh, I should note this segment is introduced by Jessica Leventhal. She's the CEO of the Precious Metals Summit Group. And they have conferences in uh, Colorado, London, and Switzerland these days. The actual interview is being carried out by Copper Bank's uh, Gianni Kovacovic, and uh, Jessica will introduce him as well. So let's get uh, into it right after this little break. It's very kind of you to invite me to make this introduction this afternoon, and I just want to point out that eight years ago, the Northern Miner covered the very first Precious Metal Summit in Beaver Creek, and it really helped us a lot, so you've been a great supporter. Thank you so much. So it's my pleasure today to introduce to you 
our moderator, Gianni Kovacevic, and our keynote speaker, uh, who will be interviewed here, Ross Beattie. Let's start with Gianni. Gianni Kovacevic is a highly regarded investor, strategist, and public speaker. He's an expert on copper and emerging markets, and an avid proponent of realistic environmentalism. Gianni resides in Vancouver, and he is the author of the book, My Electrician Drives a Porsche, which explores global economic trends and investment opportunities through the eyes of a young electrician, and it's a really readable, enjoyable book, and a great introduction if you know any people who are interested in global commodities and emerging markets, so highly commend the book. Ross Beattie uh, is probably one of the best-known investors in the resource space. He's um, been involved in minerals and renewable energy industries for nearly 40 years and has built numerous companies up and divested these companies, delivering billions of dollars of value to investors and shareholders over the decades. He founded in 1994 and is currently still chairman of Pan American Silver, one of the world's leading silver producers. He's also currently the chairman of Equinox Gold, which looks to be on track to start mining gold at its, at its um, uh, Arizona mine in uh, Brazil later in the year. He's also the executive chairman of Altera Power Corp, a renewable energy company with solar, wind, hydro, and geothermal operations in North America and Iceland. In addition to all of this, Ross is a passionate and remarkably generous environmental philanthropist, and he was awarded the Order of Canada in 2017 in recognition of his great contributions to business as well as philanthropy. Also in 2018, just a few months ago, Ross was inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame in 2018, so it's a great pleasure and honor for me to introduce to you Ross Beattie. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jessica. Well, welcome to Canada House, everyone. This is day two, I suppose. And uh, what I would like to do today as the moderator is to give you, a, let's say, a director's cut of the movie, something that you're not going to get at a Ross presentation when he talks about Equinox Gold, or something you're not going to get if you go to the internet sphere and look at uh, all the places that Ross has been before. I'll start by saying, Ross, who is he? Uh, I've known Ross for more than 10 years. He's a geologist, but he also studied law. And he also spent a lot of time as a young person in London. He's also a family man. Talk about your experience as a student, and why did you choose the legal profession? <laughs> well, mainly, I, I mean, I'm a geologist. I'm a proud, happy geologist. I wouldn't change that if I was to repeat my life. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I guess just to, to back up a little bit, I, I, I was born in Vancouver, and uh, UBC, the University of British Columbia, is a good school for geology. I had a wonderful four years there, um, broken up by a year in climbing mountains in South America. And uh, then I worked in Namibia. I worked with Texas Gulf for a summer, and I really uh, got to know why, why people like Africa, the, the game and the, the beauty of the, the continent. And coming back home through London, I visited the Royal School of Mines, and I thought it was a pretty cool place, and I applied for a, for a, a position to get a master's in, uh, in mining geology there, and I was accepted. So I came to London, and I had a wonderful year here. Spent another year in, in, uh, in Asia, tramping about with a backpack and a half a change of clothes and uh, climbing more mountains in Nepal and, and generally living like a vagabond for a year. Then I returned to Vancouver at the end of August, and, you know, it was either go to the bush after having been away three of the previous four years, 
or go back to school and, and do something different than geology. It was a PhD or an MBA or something like that. And, you know, I figured, well, what's the exact opposite to geology? And it's law. It's, it's instead of a, a natural world, it's a human-created world. No good geologist has a clue about how human society really functions in this weird, you know, created uh, world of legislation and, 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 and common law. And so I thought, well, you know, I wasn't ready to, to, to finish studying, and I went into law school and spent three dreadful years. I absolutely hated it. Uh, it was more of a hobby for me. Uh, but, you know, you know I, was, uh, I was young. I was in my mid-20s, and uh, a lot of great parties, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, great relationships. And uh, so I had a lot of fun, but I was never planning to be a lawyer. But, it, you know, if you think about it, um, geology and law, you know, they're kind of similar because... Geologists dig up dirt, and lawyers spread it around. So, you know, there is a kind of a connection there. Anyway, I never uh, practiced a day in my life. Uh, is, is law useful in, 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 as a geologist? Not really. But it's probably pretty good as a, as a business training. You know, you learn how, how things work. You learn about permits and, and, uh, and title and, 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 you know, corporate uh, situations, joint ventures, contracts. So I guess it's, it's hard to say if it's helped or hindered, but it, it probably hasn't hurt. So um, it was a kind of an interesting mix, but, but really I'm mostly a geologist and I think it's, uh, it's a great profession. And if I ever talk to young people, I say, you know, be a geologist, you'll, you'll be happy. Excellent. We're going to get to what Ross is doing right now, but we're going to sort of do a little preamble is talk about some of the companies recently that Ross has been involved with. And one of the things that I think is underappreciated by investors in general is this pivot in energy and what's taking place. Um, just to paraphrase from Sarah Week, which took place in early March, you had a panel with all the oil executives and Samir Asaf, the biggest banker at HSBC. And he told them Today, HSBC on the balance sheet has 30 billion of exposure to oil and gas, 1 billion in renewables. By 2025, including the FSB, Financial Stability Board, they have to sort of list where they're going to have exposure by 2022. He says in 2025, we're going to have 100 billion of exposure to renewable energy. This is the fifth largest bank in the world. The four Chinese banks are the largest. You recently partnered, I guess you didn't really sell, you sort of merged forces with another company with Altera Energy. You started it 10 years ago. Can yeah. you talk about that experience? Yeah, so in 2008, um, I'd sold a whole bunch of uh, copper companies, and uh, I didn't, I'd started, I think I'd started 14 different uh, companies in my career. And I, I didn't, you know, mining and exploration, I'd, I'd sort of done that, and I, I, I kind of wanted to step aside and try something new. I was, a, as, as, uh, as Jessica mentioned, I am a very passionate environmentalist. I really believe uh, that uh, we have to be very uh, much more productive of biodiversity and, and the environment. So I wanted to try to do something in the business world that would use my entrepreneurial background and, and experience in finance and, and, and building resource companies. And I s sort of settled on a renewable energy business in geothermal power, so digging holes in the ground, pulling up really, really hot water and making electricity from it as a way to get off uh, carbon-based uh, electricity generation. Uh, so the company was Magma Energy, it turned out to be Altera Power, and, uh, and, and we morphed from geothermal into wind and hydro and solar energy, so this is making electricity from all these things. 
And, uh, and eventually, it got to be a, a decent-sized company. And just in February this year, just a couple of months ago, I, I sold the company to a large Montreal-based renewable energy company called Interjects. It was a kind of a merger. It wasn't really a sale. So I'm still a very big shareholder of Interjects and on the board. But uh, I've lost the management burden of, of really building the company. Um, and, and what Johnny said is, is right, I think. You know, just that, that tenure experience in building a business in renewable energy, it's a completely different business than mining. Uh, it, it's a lot more finance-driven, a lot less optionality, a lot less about you know, volatile world markets, uh, much more predictable. But there's no real barrier to entry for, for, for people with capital. It's, it really is a business that works for, for companies with low costs of capital, like pension funds and so on. But what's happening today, it, it really taught me, I guess, from the inside, what's going on in the, in the energy world, and actually a very direct uh, uh, relationship with, with the resource world generally, the mining world especially. Uh, and this is, you know, you, you have to believe climate change is real. You have to believe it's really caused fundamentally by human burning of fossil fuels. It's a, it's, it's, it's a fact. It's no longer really seriously in doubt by anybody. Uh, I mean, 99.9% .9 of, of, of climate scientists and general scientists are on that page. Uh, there's a few deniers, but then there were doctors who said that smoking didn't cause cancer, who were paid by the smoking industry. You just have to discount all that stuff. So it's, it's a real thing, and we just have to get off our addiction to burning uh, fossil fuels, uh, generally speaking, so writ large. So for electricity, for cars, everything. And, and a lot of people, a lot of countries in the world are doing that. Uh, London, or England is leading the charge, Great Britain is leading the charge, Europe is leading the charge, Actually, an awful lot of places in the U.S. are leading despite the, uh, the backward uh, direction of, of Trump and his administration. So, you know, the Paris Agreement was signed by pretty much every country in the world. We have to get off carbon. Uh, and a lot of people are, are walking the talk. They're doing it. Um, you see it happening in, in the U.K. every, every day. Uh, this will result in a massive shift. It already is resulting, but it will just build momentum. A massive shift in investment away from classic hydrocarbon-based uh, electricity generation, for example, and transportation, to non-carbon using uh, electricity and, and, and transportation, which are the bulk of the use of, of fossil fuels, into a more renewable and a truly more sustainable form of transportation and electricity generation. Wind and hydro, sorry, hydro, sorry, wind, hydro is pretty well developed in the world. So the real future is solar and wind. Uh, solar costs, wind costs are falling, falling through the floor. Um, it's just incredible how cheaply you can build a big wind farm. We're building hundreds and hundreds of megawatts in the U.S. right now at less than four cents a kilowatt hour. Solar now you can build for five to eight cents a kilowatt hour. Five years ago it used to be 40 cents. 40 cents. So, and this is just continuing. So the thing about that is it's not, and of course, you all know about, you know, the success of Tesla and, the, and all of the other companies that are going to, to non-gasoline uh, burning cars. So there will be millions and millions and millions of cars built which use uh, batteries uh, powered by electricity. Now, this is causing profound dislocations. And it will, it, it's like a snowball. It's just going to accelerate, in my view, in the next 10 and 20 years as more and more people take real action to deal with the big climate problem we have through burning CO2. The result for the mining industry is a very good result. The result for the oil and gas industry is a very bad result. That is a dinosaur industry. 
coal, thermal coal generation, thermal coal, despite uh, uh, heroic words from, from, from big producers like Glencore, I think it is a dying industry and most equity investors have voted with their feet and have exited the business. The result has been a huge number of bankruptcies of coal companies. You know, it's just it was a bad thing to invest in. You've got to, you've got to read the tea leaves and, 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 and take action. Oil and gas companies will be next. I think you have some high-cost oil plays like the Canadian tar sands. Those will be distressed, and lots of other ones will be distressed. On the other side, renewable energy businesses are going to be booming. But the mining industry, this is a mining conference, the winner, which nobody really thinks of here, the winner is the mining industry. Because batteries use massive amounts of different metals and, and conventional metals, like, like copper, for example. Uh, wind farms, solar farms. The biggest use of silver right now has gone from almost zero 10 years ago to now it's the largest single use of silver, photovoltaic cells. This year, silver in, in photovoltaic cells is expected to consume more than 100 million ounces on a total demand for silver of about a billion ounces. So that's 10% of, of, of one of the big metal markets from zero uh, 10 years ago. It's having profound implications. We all know what's going on with lithium, with cobalt, with uh, some of the rare earth metals, with indium, with, uh, with uh, platinum and palladium potentially as, as uh, in, the, in, the, in the hydrogen fuels business. So the, the mining industry is a really big winner in this shift from, renewable, from, uh, from hydrocarbon based electricity generation and transportation to renewables. And, and that's, going to, that's going to help us all, I think. Carl Sagan, the famous science fictionist, once said, knowing a little bit about the sunset takes no romance out of the deal. And so if we go into a wind park, copper's a winner. But you've built, you, you talked about the 200-megawatt park you built in Shannon, Texas. Why is copper so relevant? Take everyone inside a wind park and explain that. Well, Johnny, the, the world expert on copper use in energy is you. So you should do that. Why don't you it's do your that? talk, you're, Ross. You're much, you're, he's much more lucid on this. Well, I mean, we could both do it. it it's, it's just, yeah, I mean, electric cars use how much more copper than regular cars? 4X. Thank you, 4X. Yeah. How much more copper do wind farms use? Offshore's 10X, onshore 5X. How about solar panels? That depends on the type of configuration, 4X, 5X. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's copper's used. Copper is as much an energy metal as oil. Or co copper is as much an energy commodity as oil. If you think about copper, it's the generation. That's what makes electricity, a moving wire, you know, in a, to create a magnet. And uh, copper is used in, in electricity transmission. Copper is used in electricity and use. Every single motor uses copper. The more motors, the more copper demand. And so it's, it's really an energy metal. Silver now is becoming an energy metal. Lithium, we all know, is an energy metal. But there's other ones like manganese, aluminum, uh, even lowly iron. These are all metals that can produce really good large storage batteries, which is the kind of state of the art, state of the uh, of play right now. For that's um, the cutting edge of where we're going with renewable energy. The problem with wind and hydro and solar, uh, run of river hydro especially. But the big problem with with wind and, and solar is the intermittency. And you solve that with a good storage battery. So the problem in storage batteries is cost. It has to be low cost to work. And you can't use expensive metals like cobalt if you're going to build huge storage batteries. You've got to use other metals. So you can use 
iron, you can use sulfur, you can use uh, manganese, aluminum, these are much lower cost, maybe vanadium. Uh, and this is all going to really transform an awful lot of metals markets when those batteries become really utility scale. Saudi Arabia right now, just, I mean, the most stunning announcement was their announcement about two weeks ago of, um, of approving a 200 gigawatt, 200 gigawatt, it, the numbers are so staggering, I can't even imagine it, solar farm in Saudi Arabia. 200 gigawatts, to put that into context, uh, British Columbia uses about 12 gigawatts, the whole province, 3 million people. Canada uses about 140 gigawatts. So in one solar farm in Saudi Arabia, they're going to generate more electricity than the entire country of Canada uses. Uh, it, it's, it's just a staggering number. It's going to cost about $200 billion, and this is part of their energy shift. Well, if the biggest petroleum producer in the world is doing this kind of thing, I think it's a fair assumption that this is going to be the direction of the whole world. Uh, and, and, uh, and what metals those use, copper, silver, all those other metals that are being used in that solar farm, you know, it's, it's going to fuel new mines in many places. The last time Ross was really involved with a company was a success story called Lumina Copper. And if we um, tell you a quick story in Chile. I was uh, in Chile recently, and I sat down with some gentlemen who know the business very well, and Ross Beattie was vagabonding in Chile in the early 2000s, and he wanted to acquire copper projects. Do you recall? Vagabonding? Vagabonding, traveling. And copper was at at an all-time low. And these people finally said, Ross, why are you buying these projects? These are not economic. And Ross said, well, basically, I believe China's growing and the copper price will increase. My team will enhance the value of these projects and we'll be selling them back to you in about 10 years. He was wrong. He sold most of those projects within five years. And that was an example of a company that you were very involved with. Maybe just articulate the Lumina Copper experience. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple... Um, it's so easy to say and it's so hard to do. Buy low, sell high. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> buy low, sell high. When no one else thinks anything is worth anything, and I'm talking metal, I'm talking commodity markets really, which are cyclical, that's when you want to be buying, when no one else wants them. So I went around and bought about 10 big copper deposits, and I remember, I was telling uh, somebody yesterday, um, I remember at a show, and we, we took a company public in 2003, and the first investment conference we went to was in January 2004 at uh, Vancouver, one of the, the Vancouver investment conferences. And I was standing at our booth for Lumina Copper. We had everything in that one company. And the, C, the chief geologist of the world's largest publicly traded copper company, Phelps Dodge, a guy named Bill Williams, he was behind me. And an investor was talking to him, and the investor said, oh, you know, uh, should we look at investing in that Lumina Copper? I heard they have a bunch of copper. And Bill Williams said, oh, no, 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 that's just other companies' garbage. And, and actually, at that time, it was true, because it had no value. It had zero value. The copper price was about uh, 80 cents a pound, and, uh, and, and all of these deposits, they were worthless at that price. But, you know, over the next five or six years, we sold all, all of the properties for about $2 billion dollars, all cash, and uh, we'd invested about $160 million to get to that $2 billion value. So that was some garbage. If that's garbage, you know, bring it on. <laughs> but the lesson to me is, is actually applicable today, and, and that's really in the, in the gold space. I, 
You know, we've actually had a pretty good move in copper, and most of the copper equities have doubled or tripled. It's, it's, uh, it's it, you know, it's been a pretty decent market in, in, in some metals. Zinc, certainly. Uh, cobalt, of course. Uh, lithium, we've seen, we've seen pretty good moves in the last couple of years, right? The low is about, you know, January 2016. Things have bounced pretty nicely. But today, in, in the gold business, and, and really that's kind of where I'm principally focused today, we have this weird situation today that I can say I've rarely experienced in my entire career. It's very odd, and it's unnatural, and therefore it will not be sustainable. And the situation is we've had a pretty good move in the gold price. Gold's up about 30% off its base in, two, in January 2016. 30% off of about a 10, 1030 or 1040. Now it's trading at 1350 or so. But the gold equities have gone down, especially in the last year or so. And, and so when, when the gold price goes up and the gold equities go down, something weird is happening. Unless you believe that gold prices are going down, which I don't, the equilibration will be that gold equities will rise. And probably smartly when something happens. So just like in 2003, when copper was on the floor, everybody thought copper was dead. But if you, look at a cycl if you look at a chart, any chart of going back 50 years, you can see the, cycl the cyclicity of these commodities. And gold is no different. It is a cyclical world we live in. There are times to buy and there are times to sell. Today is a great time to buy, right now. I said the same thing in January 2016, and I went long in a big way as an investor. In fact, many companies here today, I've had a big position in, meaning, I mean, even uh, Orca, I've got about 10% in Orca. GT Gold coming right after me, I've got about 10% of that, something like that. I mean, I've gone long as an investor because I really believe in these cycles. And the punchline for me on that whole story, in other words, I'm really putting my money where my mouth is, because I love gold and I really think gold is going much, much higher, in this cycle, eventually it'll top out and, and crater. It absolutely will. But in this cycle, it's got a lot more room to go. I'm going to say it's in maybe the third inning of a long, you know, reasonably good bull market. So I'm buying lots of gold. I'm buying gold companies. And I started my own gold company named after my very first company, Equinox Resources, my first company that I started in 1990, uh, 1985. And last December, we put three companies together to create a new gold, what will be uh, very, very soon, uh, a, a gold producer. Ultimately, our target is to become a mid-tier gold producer between half a million and a million ounces a year. And I'm putting, I've put $30 million into that. Uh, I'm fired up about it. We've got great projects. And I'm, I'm, it, it's, not, it's not just the project, it's the, it's the metal. I really believe in gold. And I figure I'm going to try to bracket my career with equinoxes and, uh, and, and build this thing and work as hard as I can to make it into a really great gold company. Whether it gets to be as big as Gold Corp or Barrick, we'll see. But I'm, I'm very ambitious, and, uh, and I'm, really, um, I'm really going to try to build it as quickly as I can before we have that big moving gold that I see around the corner. 
you know, it's, uh, it's easier said than done. You know, a lot of people say, well, we're going to be an acquirer, we're going to be a consolidator. Uh, it's much more difficult to do. You've got a lot of social issues and valuation issues, and, you know, it's, it's but, but we'll, we'll do it. You can do it in gold. It's, it's very, very hard to do in silver. We did it in silver. It took me about 10 years to do in silver, but uh, I'm going to try to do it in three years in gold uh, as a producer, as a big gold mining company. And then I have a bunch of investments in, uh, in the gold uh, you could say exploration space, and and that's another another kind of business. But but I love gold right now, and uh, and one of the reasons is this wonderful oh gold equities. So the gold metal I love, but but even if gold as a, as a commodity doesn't move a penny, you're going to see a move in the equities at some point in the near future. I think when the world realizes the margins that are being made today are pretty healthy margins, it's a good business just on its fundamentals. But the equities are beaten up. It's weird whether it's bitcoins or marijuana stocks that have taken some of the speculative money out or the billions and billions of dollars that has been destroyed in our business by uh, not just dumb management. Uh, there is a bit of There has been a bit of that. I don't really blame management too much. But just, just think in the last year or year and a half, how much wealth has been destroyed by dumb governments from Guatemala to Tanzania to DRC to even Russia with the sanctions that happened, uh, it destroyed billions of dollars of value of different mining companies there, uh, to, uh, you know, to Pascualama, even uh, in, in Chile, and, and all kinds of boneheaded decisions that have, have destroyed value, mostly just greed. Government's just getting greedy and wanting more and more of a, of a, of a limited pie, uh, ultimately killing the goose that, that, that ultimately had that golden egg. And, uh, and companies are unfortunately the victims, and poor shareholders are really the victims, the owners of these companies. So there's been billions and billions of dollars removed from the sector. Uh, it's hurt all the specialist funds. It's distracted general funds. Uh, and plus, you've had all the, the, the big markets go, go higher every month. Tech stocks have been the darlings. People just haven't been interested in metals, let alone gold. Uh, I think that's going to change at some point. When it changes, there'll be a violent, happy result and, uh, and that's kind of what I'm building my investments to wait for that time. So you're, just so people are clear, Ross has had lots of investments, but you haven't been an active chairman of a right. new company until Equinox 2.0. Right. And you talked about some of the countries that have sensitivities, and there's always this p thing where, with risk tolerance, where can we send our children to work? For many people, that's risk tolerance. Where would you like to work, and where we talked about some of the countries that maybe you're staying away from? But where, what are you looking for? What yeah, do you like? that's a tough. That's a tough question to answer. You know, you can't be too clever in picking countries, because one day a country can be a great place to prospect or explore and, and mine, and the next day a disaster. And that's not just the the weird and and, and, and far away countries. It could be Canada. I mean, British Columbia government has nationalized one of the biggest copper deposits in the province. Uh, the Alberta government one day came up with a completely insane oil and gas royalty scheme that just would have destroyed the oil industry in Alberta. So look at Australia. Australia came out with one government with another completely insane royalty package. So even established countries do crazy things. And it's all about ignorance and greed. I think that's really what drives the ignorance of the government about how you incentivize an industry, how you create that wealth machine that a good mine is, and, and greed. They're just wanting more and more. Uh, yeah, and you've seen it all over, all, over, all over the world. But 
you look at places like Peru, which is a pariah back in, uh, back in the 1980s. There was a, you know, there was a violent, violent re revolution kind of happening there. People were getting, all right, we bought a mine in 1995 in Peru. The chief geologist and the, and the mine manager had been assassinated two years earlier from that very mine. So they had 140 security forces at that mine when we bought it. And I was sort of thinking, gee, maybe this isn't such a good idea. We had, you know, we had, we had 12 guys with Kalashnikovs guarding us every time we went on a little field tour around the mine. They didn't want to have a repeat of the, the, the problem. But my bet was that this, this, this leader, Fujimori, was going to clean things up, and he did. And now that's, that, he, he really did that in 1993. Uh, there were a couple little skirmishes later in the 90s, but, but really today, 25 years later, it's still one of the greatest mining destinations in the world. So everybody who ran away from Peru in the 1990s was wrong. Africa today, there's a lot of terrible things going on in DRC. Tanzania is doing dumb things. Zambia is doing dumb things. South Africa is doing dumb things. But, you know, maybe they'll change. Maybe Zimbabwe today, maybe the new president is actually going to turn things around. Maybe that's the kind of place to go. Venezuela, a nightmare, a disaster in Latin America. It's the worst possible place to explore and develop. Who knows? Maybe uh, Maduro is going to be knocked out by, and, and a reasonable guy is going to come in. It's got a great gold endowment. Maybe that's the place to go. So you can't be too clever, Gianni. My approach is diversification. Take a diversified approach. Just like an investor should have a diversified basket of assets in this risky business so that if one blows up one day, another one might be doing really, really well. Have, an, have a portfolio, five to ten projects, five to ten places, and I think you'll be better off. Is, is there a question perhaps from the crowd that we could uh, include uh, someone that might have a question for Ross? And let's try to keep the questions very short. and Because the answers are generally very long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the gentleman in the back there. You mentioned the um, you mentioned the discord between the gold price going up and equities, uh, especially gold equities coming down. You've seen the price to net asset value, uh, the ratio coming down substantially. Do you not think some of this is driven by the this whole speculation? At the end of the day, I mean, especially gold equities for exploration companies, that's a spec stock. Do you not think some of the fintech stuff that's going on now is actually taking some of the drive out of uh, totally, totally? Yes, I do. I, I, but, but I don't see it as, as being long-lasting. I don't see it as permanent. So, for example, if you have the uh, major markets crater, I, I think gold will outperform. Gold equities will outperform all other equities. And, and, well, I could, I could comment about your copper comment back in 2003, 2004. Don't forget, Cadelco, I think, uh, stored a quarter of their production. I mean, uh, and, and China was just coming on board. I mean, there's some very good drivers behind that. But um, in terms of the gold price, I think when the world realizes where, where all this gold is going, and a lot of it is going into China unofficially, mm -hmm. I think the gold price will move up substantially. Thank you. Any I other agree. short brief questions? You, you don't often hear the terms miner and environmentalist in the same bio. You've right. spent most of your life operating mines. I'm just interested in whether you have any comment on doing things differently from an environmental perspective. Yeah, thank you very much for that question. It's, it's, it, you know, it's obviously a great the perception of mining is poor among environmentalists. It shouldn't be, especially when those same environmentalists use metals in every single thing they do all day long. It is, it is the height of hypocrisy 
for somebody to use a car and a cell phone and, 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 and criticize mining, unless it's mining that's not done right. So there's truly a right way to mine and a wrong way to mine. And I am uh, one of my many pet peeves. <laughs> Don't get me going. One of my many pet peeves is how people criticize major mining companies like Barrick and BHP and Rio Tinto for their environmental practices at, at their operations when they stay silent about the most egregious environmental practice, which is their practices which are being done by indigenous miners in Brazil, in Colombia, all through the Amazon. These people are desecrating rivers with mercury and cyanide with no reclamation whatsoever. In Africa, you see indigenous miners digging holes, terrible safety, terrible environmental practices, and nobody says a word. Uh, whereas some of the best practices are being done by the largest companies who have truly good CSR practices and, are, and should, be corporate, should be put up on pillars as great corporate citizens. Having said that, of course we can do a better job, and, and a lot of people are working a lot on trying to do a better job, using water better, using better reagents, less say cyanide, making smaller footprints, and smaller footprints means smaller waste dumps, smaller tailings ponds, dry tailings as opposed to wet tailings, all sorts of innovations that ha serve to reduce the footprint, the environmental footprint of mining. It, it's, it's, it's never going to stop. The more we can do that, the better. But the hypocrisy of people who criticize mining companies and then use metals, or, uh, or, or actually, if you think about it, a mine, which is a short-term use of land and is reclaimed, and often is hardly even noticeable when it's being reclaimed other than these really giant, giant open pit mines, uh, but particularly underground mines, you hardly know they were there you know, 50 years later. Contrast that with suburbs and roads and railways and all these other large human infrastructure projects which are permanent uses of lands and 100% destructive. But nobody ever talks about that. They talk about these visible things that they can, they can, they can, you know, they can go against. So I, I get a little tired of the hypocrisy, but you know, it's a fact of life uh, and, and mining companies are magnets for that kind of thing. You just have to let it roll off your back, do what you can do. And, and, and by the way, some of the most environmentally conscious people I know are miners. It, it's, it's, and, and CEOs of large mining companies. Don Lindsay, the CEO of Tech, he's an ardent environmentalist and he's done some of the most heroic land conservation in, in Canada. And nobody even knows about that. But these are people who have sincere uh, environmental credentials and I think even though they're also associated with a dirty industry, you just have to do the best you can. That was a long Wait, answer to a Anthony? short question, sorry. Yeah, well, well said, Ross, well said, yes. Yeah, Ross, uh, thank you very much for your leadership uh, for the industry and for the common sense of your approach. But uh, there hasn't been enough humour uh, yet. And uh, there's something that's troubled me for years, is you are a great industry leader for mining, uh, but not a promoter. Uh, Robert Friedland is a great industry leader for mining, but a promoter. But did you ever enter into some sort of an agreement with Robert Friedland that you could have all of the Americas and he could have Africa and Asia? 
Is that just a rumor? <laughs> I, I can't talk about that because antitrust rules are very strict in these matters. When we carve up the world, you know, we have to be very quiet about it. Thank you. And by the way, there are a lot of people who would, who would disagree with you that I'm not a promoter. <laughs> Hi. Um, thank you. It's an honor. Uh, I just want to say I am a big fan of yours, actually. Uh, uh, just a quick question, uh, because you mentioned uh, the oil and gas, uh, and what I'm seeing in my research as well, uh, especially in the U.S. with fracking and you know, these kind of things, the cost of doing business essentially has gone down for them as well in this industry, oil and gas. And as we know, oil and gas uh, is used in many kind of ordinary products as well, plastics and yeah. things of that nature. So I just wanted, to, if you can comment on how do you see the, this industry playing out, not just the electric vehicles, obviously that's a big part, but how do you see the prices, oil prices and yeah. things like that? Going? <clears throat> right, so... I, the acoustics here are kind of bad, so did you hear the question in the back? So it's about oil and gas, and, and the first comment I would say is that it is, a, it is a crime to take one of the world's most incredible commodities, which is oil, or, or gas, but especially oil. It's just an amazing, amazing commodity, and burn it. One-off use. Burn into the air, you're ruining the air, ultimately ruining the water. It's all connected. And it's a one-off, and you're taking something that has taken millions of years to accumulate, and in a nanosecond, you're destroying it. It's just a crime. Uh, it's terrible. The, the, if you're going to use oil, let's use it for a value-added product. Let's use it for fertilizer or for plastics or for all the myriad of things, the millions and millions of things that oil can be used for, uh, for a higher purpose, you could say, especially things that can be recycled and reused, uh, like certain plastics. Uh, not styrofoam, that's a nasty plastic, but, but some of the other plastics that can be reused. Let's use it for a, a good thing. That is a very uh, idealistic view. It, it's not going to happen. People burn it because it's cheap and it's easy and it's a wonderful fuel. Uh, it creates a lot of power per unit. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's going to happen unless we price oil for what it is doing to the air and ultimately the water. And that's where things like carbon taxes and carbon and cap and trade systems come in. And I think you're going to see more and more of that, trying to price the burning of, of fossil fuels for the damage it is really doing to our world. And you see the damage in you know, insurance premiums and in all the costs of severe weather events and so on, to say, to say the least, let alone asthma and, and, and air pollution problems and then ultimately acidification of oceans. I mean, there's really profound problems, that, uh, profound costs that this is causing. So how does that play into price? Well, you know, less demand, of course, the price is going to go down. Uh, supply, there's, there's plenty of supply at a price. But a lot of supply, if the price goes down because demand becomes less, you're going to see that supply left, or leave, I should say, leave the supply market. The high-cost offshore oil, the high-cost difficult oil, like the oil sands in Canada, the pools of cheap oil will still be producing North Sea, Saudi pools, and so on. But, you know, there will be less produced, and that's a good thing, as less is demanded from the transportation industry, less is demanded from the power industry, you're going to see less. And that should drive the price down, which should reduce the total supply, total demand. It'll, it'll, it's all about price. As there's a price on pollution, 
that'll influence demand as well. We have time for another question, yep. Uh, Ross, just on the gold side, you mentioned uh, valuation was something that was maybe mm -hmm. making it difficult to, to build your 500,000 ounces. Can you just talk about what you look for in valuations and uh, if you're very bullish on the gold price, it might make everything look cheap, but can you just talk about how you go about evaluating companies? Sure. You know, right now is a really interesting time. Um, valuation, you know, you, when you look... I'm, 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 I'm trying to make this a, a simple answer, but it's a very complicated real world because when you do a valuation of any investment, I'll say investment, but my invest, so I'm an investor looking at other companies, that's, that's one, one hat, and the other hat as the chair and, and, and builder of, of Equinox Gold as a mining company, we value other projects all the time. So in a way, they're sort of the same. You look at kind of the same things. You, you look at... Um, First and foremost is geology. You want a long life deposit. And so we have an Equinox Gold. We have a project in, in uh, but, but you can't be too clever with things like NAVs, with things like feasibility study results, because we have a, a project in, in uh, Brazil, and it's got a six and a half year mine life on the feasibility study on which we're building a mine. And we have about a $200 million NAV on that, which gives us $150 million capex, gives us about a, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what the number is, quite frankly. 25%, 30% rate of return? Not bad. But that particular project is going to last decades and decades and decades. It's going to last, I'm going to predict that it'll, it'll last way longer than I live. It, it'll last for 50 to 100 years because it's a gold system that is of a kind that doesn't have a depth limit. It just, once that mine transition from open to underground and it's continuous, there's multiple zones. It's just a real gold camp. It's going to be here for absolutely decades. So every time we add a year to the mine life, we, we boost the NAV and we get the rate of return, which, which, which is going to increase off of the initial capex. But then, of course, it's going to cost more money to explore, more money to develop. When we go underground, another set of capital. So you've kind of got to build all that in. But you can't get too... It's kind of like where you look. You can't get too cute or too rigid or, or you know, doctrinaire about looking at one metric like NAV or rate of return. Because every time you, say, double the reserve life, you're doubling the NAV. But it doesn't show up in a feasibility study. So that's an example of a really phenomenal project, and they're pretty rare. If you have a six or seven year mine life in an ordinary project, the problem with that is you cannot span commodity cycles. And if you're unlucky and you build it at the top of the cycle and you happen to produce it at the bottom, you're gonna lose money. If you borrow, you're gonna, you're gonna have serious problems. So, so an NAV is a point in time at a certain set of assumptions about mine life, gold price, uh, cost structure. Another example is, is today, my, my silver company, Pan American, we're making about a million dollars a day right now in cash flow, which was at a silver price today, it's around 17 bucks, something like that, $17 US an ounce. In 2011, the silver price was $46 an ounce, and we were making a million dollars a day. Our costs have come down. Our costs right now hover around a dollar or $2 an ounce. Then they were 20 to $22 an ounce. So, you know, your margins are changing, not only your revenue, but your costs. 
And today is a really nice time in the, in the business because we've just gone through this bear market. Costs have come down. The U.S. dollar is strong. So if you're producing in Peru and paying Peruvian peso, Peruvian souls, or you're producing somewhere else where the currency is devalued, your costs are lower and your revenue is higher. Even though the gold price is much lower than it was or the silver price is much lower than it was, your margins are greater. And, and you kind of have to think about all of that when you're doing evaluation. Location, team, mine life, cost, grade, you know, but, but even grade. Some mines, 10 grams per, per ton, you can't make money. Uh, other mines, you can make money at 0.5 grams per ton. It's, it's a complicated business there. Ross, thank you so much. We're out of time. And uh, I think it was a lot of fun. And in the words of J.P. Morgan for everyone in this business, go as far as you can see. When you get there, you'll see farther. Have confidence in this business. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. <laughs>